Good evening. So I do want to start by saying thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for letting me speak. Um, thank you for our leadership uh, encouraging me to do this. Um, it is a privilege to serve with uh, our staff and um, to see the direction that the church is going. And I'm both encouraged by that and also a little bit intimidated by this undertaking. I'm, I always get nervous whenever I get up in front of people, not because I don't like speaking, but because uh, I don't like the attention. So, um, But we're going to be in Psalm 110 today. Um, so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110 um, as you find your place. I want to give you a little overview of what we're going to be talking about. Um, psalm 110 has the distinction of being, if not the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, it is at least uh, one of the two. Um, my dad and I had this uh, back and forth, whether it was Psalm 118 or Psalm 110, and um, I think that it's Psalm 110, um, but if, <laughs> if uh, you know, it's one of those two. They're, they're by far and away the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Um, it is referenced in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, so that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> and um, it is also mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter references it at the um, Sermon in Pentecost. Um, and then it has uh, what I like to call like an inter-biblical uh, commentary in Hebrews. Um, we get a very in-depth explanation of what this psalm means within the Bible. If you've not studied Hebrews, I would encourage you to because it reads very much like a commentary. Um, they take all of these ideas and images from the Old Testament and they, uh, the writer explains how Christ is the fulfillment of those uh, elements, those shadows, those pictures, um, those things. And so we'll be kind of um, mentioning some of those. Um, the theme you should see is uh, a messianic one. This is a very messianic psalm. That is to say that it, it speaks to the Messiah. Um, and um, that's not to say that it doesn't have any significance um, for the contemporaries that would have been reading or singing this psalm. That's just to say that the greater significance is found in its fulfillment in the Messiah to come. Um, the greatest significance, I think, that I'll try to be communicating to you tonight is the concept of how is it that Christ is greater than even the greatest king? So this is, you'll see, even before the psalm begins, you'll see as a means of introduction, it says a psalm of David. Um, and it's no secret that the, David was, by far and away, the best king uh, in the days of Israel. Uh, and that the people in even Christ's time um, looked forward to a king like him um, coming. So I'll read Psalm 110, and then we're going to just kind of walk through it together here. So if you'll read with me, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I am encouraged that we were able to sandwich Melchizedek into a song. 
I didn't think that that was possible. I was interested to see how the psalm singing would go tonight. So uh, kudos to Pastor Corey um, <laughs> for finding a way to make it work. Um, one thing that I would like us to do together as uh, a church family is um, I would encourage you all to just practice. I'm, I'm going to give you a countdown. I want you to practice saying Melchizedek um, because we actually have like a contingency that always comes to me and asks me questions about this passage, including, how do you say that? Um, so I want us all to say Melchizedek on three, okay? This is not any kind of weird cultic thing. I just want you to say it just for fun. <laughs> um, so on the count of three, one, two, three, Melchizedek. Perfect, thank you. Um, and those of you who have had the distinction of being around me while we read Hebrew names, you'll know that my favorite joke is to say, Morphlin. Um, even if you say it exactly perfectly right in Hebrew, you can always use Morphlin. So, we'll get to the serious stuff now. <laughs> Starting with uh, verse 1, um, you see this phrase, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, most Bibles will indicate two different lords here, and it's easy to miss. Um, so when you read the first Lord, in most Bibles it will have all capital letters. So it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, and then the second Lord is actually capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Um, the first Lord here in all caps is actually the Hebrew name for God, so it is Yahweh, um, which is exclusively a title for God. It is God's name. Um, this is not something that you would ever hear uh, being given to anything less than God. The second Lord is actually more of a title. Um, it is a title of respect that is typically given to people in authority, much like kings. Um, and it, it finds it's a similar, uh, basically it is related to the, the Hebrew word Adonai. Um, and so that was not exclusively used for God, but it was frequently used for God, okay? So it's similar to how the New Testament uses the word kairos, which is Lord in the New Testament. Sometimes it meant sir, Sometimes it meant master. Um, so trying to decipher that in the New Testament is a challenge. Here, we don't have to guess as to why those two lords are being used. Um, so we read that Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools, uh, or your footstool. So, um, in the immediate context, um, keep in mind that this is a Psalm of David. They, um, a lot of... Uh, scholars and uh, commentaries think that this was actually like a psalm that would be a royal psalm. So it would be sung at coronations after great victories. So for contemporaries of David's day, you would be hearing, the idea would be, God says to the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, so this imagery is very vivid, and I don't think it takes a lot of like exercise and thinking to figure out what's going on. Uh, the lowest form of defeat would be turning this person basically into furniture um, and resting your feet upon them, which we know anything about the um, old world. Everyone walked everywhere in sandals, very dirty. That's why it's so scandalous that Christ would wash the disciples' feet. So we're talking about someone who is so defeated that their only usefulness is to hold dirty feet. Um, which is significant. So 
Um, so the enemies of this Lord are to be brought so low that the king can rest his feet upon them. They are reduced to furniture. That's significant. Um, but there's a greater significance here. And fortunately, we also don't have to guess at this greater significance. Um, in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, Christ himself uses this passage uh, to challenge the Pharisees' understanding of the Messiah. And so he brings it up as a means because in that day, um, the Pharisees held to the view that no descendant would be greater than the person they descended from. And so Christ uses this passage to point out that David says, and they knew that this was, they, you can tell there's some kind of acute understanding that the Pharisees of the day knew this was about the Messiah. And so he uses this passage to point out that David calls, he doesn't call him his son, he says, my Lord. Um, and so it's referenced there. Uh, but there's another reference uh, by Peter and Pentecost who actually quotes the whole passage and he attributes it directly to Christ. And so there's no guesswork here. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of this passage is Christ, is his ascension and his seat at the right hand of the Father. Um, and so the first point that we, we see here is that um, Christ is the only king worthy of sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, for that immediate context we discussed where you know, the people would be singing about their king um, to sit at my right hand, they would be, that king would be there mercifully, graciously. That king did not earn that seat of honor at the right hand of God. That king did not earn his enemies being under his footstool. Even the most faithful of kings would never deserve to be there. However, Christ is superior to the greatest King David because he is worthy of that seat at the right hand of the Father. Um, he did not require any grace or mercy to be there. He earned it through his act of obedience, through his life, and uh, through the uh, redemption of those that are his. I'm sorry, y'all. I get, I get dry throat so bad when I speak. It's a curse. Or blessing. Calls me to slow down. <laughs> um, so, and we, we know that Christ, uh, after the ascension, did sit at the right hand of the Father. We know it for more than just the fulfillment of this, this passage. Um, so that really shouldn't catch us too much by surprise. Um, but the, uh, an encouragement for you all, I hope that you realize that the Apostle Paul talks about the enemies. He talks about enemies, and he says that there's only one left, and that's death. Uh, and so Christ sits at the right hand of the Father while the Father makes his enemies his footstool, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is an encouragement for you all, um, that there are no forces of darkness. There are no principalities, no powers. There are no elements uh, within the world that would unseat this king who is worthy of sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, there is nothing that can overcome him, nothing that can stop his reign and his rule. Um, and so I would encourage you with that word. Moving on to verse 2, uh, we read that the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now in this verse, you'll see that the, the scepter being mentioned is always an icon with uh, the kingly position. Uh, that is more than just in the Bible. Uh, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a coronation of the King of England, but he gets that weird ball thing and that weird rod thing, right? So that weird rod thing is the scepter. 
It's the royal scepter. Um, and this is actually uh, a, a bit of a connection between an Old Testament prophecy and um, this section. So this harkens back to the ending of the book of Genesis. Uh, if you've read there, you'll know that Jacob in Genesis, I believe it's 49, um, prophesies over his sons and his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He says of Judah that um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so we see this first prophecy given of Judah that a king, the kingly line would be fulfilled through Judah. And so as you see the scepter being sent forth, the idea of the scepter being sent forth is that his dominion shall expand, uh, that his kingdom would continue to grow. Um, and so this verse, uh, in connecting these two things, it, it, David, acknowledge, David acknowledges that the scepter goes forth only by God. Um, and likewise, in a messianic fulfillment, you see kind of the same thing. Uh, Christ's kingdom grows. Christ's kingdom um, expands. Um, and, uh, you know, rule in the midst of your enemies. It's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, Jude, Israel would have had enemies north, east, south, and yet the king would still rule. His, his scepter would still be, um, it wouldn't be taken from him because we know it wouldn't depart from, from Judah. Similar to the way Christ uh, rules and reigns in us today. So, um, his kingdom is expanding even in the midst of his enemies uh, from a spiritual sense. Uh, we see people coming to Christ all the time. And even as we look out over this uncertain climate uh, with politics and the craziness of COVID and whatever your personal struggle is, um, know that we have a prophecy here that lets us know that Christ still rules in the midst of your enemies, of, of his enemies. Um, so Christian, if you find yourself wrapped up in these concerns, uh, keep in mind that the same God who attended all of these small details um, and keeps every covenant he makes, he still reigns and is still faithful. And so you should put your hope in him and him alone. And then uh, we'll move on to verse three. So in verse three, we read, uh, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Uh, in this verse, we see the people who are the kings rightly offer themselves to him. So the king has made them his own. They are his people. Um, and uh, rightly, those people respond by offering themselves freely on the day of his power. Uh, I don't know if you have a footnote like I do, but it also, if you, you know, go down to your footnotes um, next to in the day of your power, you'll see... Um, on the day that you gather your forces, which I think is well, better in line with the section that we actually sung tonight through Psalm 110. Um, so this verse should be read as both a call to action um, for the faithful and as a, um, basically as a, a, a verse of division. So the people who are not offering themselves freely are not the kings, and the people who are offering themselves freely are the kings. Um, you may have also noticed the phrase, in holy garments. Um, this should remind us of a couple of analogies the Apostle Paul makes. Um, so the Apostle Paul loves to frequent the analogy of putting on Christ. Um, it is Christ's righteousness alone that would make us 
be able to put on holy garments. Um, Paul quoting Psalms reminds us that all of our unrighteous, all of our righteousness, un, all of our righteousness says are as filthy rags. Um, he quotes a different psalm when he makes that point, and so you should be reminded that these people who are in holy garments are in holy garments because it has been bestowed to them by the king. Um, if we were to try to weave our own holy garments, all we would have is filthy rags. And so you see a merciful king gathering his forces. These people are rightly offering themselves freely because they've been clothed in righteousness. That is your messianic analogy. Um, so we move on to verse 4, and we come across a verse that is very significant um, in its foreshadowing of Christ. Um, you are introduced to this Melchizedek guy that we all now super know well how to pronounce. Um, good on you. Uh, we also crammed him into a song. Sorry that you missed it, Jed, but it did work. Um, <laughs> and this verse, although it might seem insignificant, it's incredibly important um, in shaping our idea of Christ fulfilling more than one role. Um, so we've already talked about how he's a king that is worthy of sitting at the right hand of the Father. This verse gives us an, an, a look into how Christ is the only king who can also fill the office of priest. So the, that separation of roles was very important and very crucial in the Old Testament. Um, and it was, in fact, you see, like, Saul goes to, he does not wait for Samuel, he offers the sacrifice himself, and he gets himself in a lot of trouble for it. Um, kind of really significant trouble. He loses the kingdom. Um, and so that should be your, your red flag, almost as it were, that the king and the priestly line were not something that were intended to, to mix in that context. Um, we should not, glance, we should not um, gloss over lightly, but for sake of time we probably will, um, that this introduction to Melchizedek is phrased with a statement of God's immutability. So you see that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Uh, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're not talking about a God who does things spuriously or off the cuff. We're talking about a God who is unchanging, immutable. He is without mutation. And um, these things that we see later in the book of Hebrews, some many, many, many years after the writing of this psalm, um, are foreshadowed. And they are... Uh, basically prescripted, um, something that happens, uh, something that is stated prior to its happening. So I think that'll make more sense as we actually talk through Hebrews. Maybe should have done that in reverse order. Um, so, um, so we see in verse 4 that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we've al already discussed that the um, Messiah was known to come from the line of Judah. And so if you know your Old Testament, you'll remember that the priestly line was the Levitical line. Um, and so we have this, we should have this natural reaction. But, well, it's kind of hard after you've gone through Hebrews to have this uh, red flag go off. But you got to remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. There you go. So this would have been, this might have been potentially scandalous to them to talk about uh, Christ as a priest. Um, so, as far as Melchizedek goes, he is mentioned extremely briefly in the book of Genesis. 
Um, Abram basically wins a battle against a group of rival kings. He rescues his nephew Lot, and he plunders um, from the kings. And as he is in the valley after his victory, um, this figure, Melchizedek, comes to meet him. And he brings him, we read in Genesis 14, that he brings him bread and wine, and that he blesses him, and that Abraham gives a tithe of his spoils back to Melchizedek. Um, if you read the book of Hebrews, you will notice there is a theme throughout the whole book, and it's the, the betterness or the superiority of Christ. It's on every page. Uh, you see that Christ was uh, better than the angels in just the couple of first couple of opening uh, statements. You see that he was better than the Old Testament priest system. He was better than, he had a better sacrifice. He was found, uh, founding a better covenant built on better promises. And the theme is just overwhelmingly geared in that direction. Um, and so you, if you turn to Hebrews 7, you will see that the idea is fleshed out that Christ is a superior priest. And um, the writer of Hebrews uses this passage, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, to point out that even though Levi had not yet been born, there was a great high priest. There was already a priest of God most high, rather, uh, in Melchizedek. So Levi, this is kind of the same thing as Christ's challenging the Pharisees about familial uh, superiority. So he says, the writer of Hebrews says that Levi was still in Jacob, who was still in Isaac, who was still in Abraham, and Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and paid the tithe. And the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews does not leave that unclear. He says that the greater blesses the lesser, and the lesser pays tithe to the greater. And so in using this passage right here, the writer of Hebrews points out that Christ is, a, is more than qualified to be a great high priest, even though he's from the Davidic line. And you see a beautiful merger of prophecies uh, where Christ is both fulfilling the Davidic promises uh, that a Messiah would come from David's line and also fulfilling um, the ultimate fulfillment of that Old Testament um, foreshadowing, which was a priest. And what did priests do? They answered to God on behalf of the people. Uh, so we're reminded that our great high priest sits at the right hand of the Father. Um, these are linked, but he does not sit idle. So he is seated at this position of power, but he is also there making intercession on our behalf. Um, and he's the only king who is able to also be our great high priest. No other king was worthy of melding those two roles. Moving on to verses five through seven, um, we see that the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of your wrath, on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In this section, I hope that you are able to see that Christ is the only king who is worthy to judge all the nations. Um, kings only had, kings in any other king would only have authority over what is his, uh, whereas Christ's authority is throughout. And so you see a, a clear picture of kind of complementary phrases in five and six. Um, and so it, it should give you a almost poetic emphasis 
of Christ. Uh, you will see that he will shatter kings and execute judgment among the nations, followed by he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And in both sentences, rulers are broken down and the extent of this conquest is stated. So rival kings, rival powers, um, not enough to overcome the king. And it's, there is no limit to this. That's what these verses are, that's what five and six are trying to communicate to us. Um, and so you, you see that Christ, his authority would, would go out. Um, we, we see that he says to Peter on Peter's confession that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Um, and that should be encouraging to us since we're the church. Um, that no powers of darkness would be able to overcome this king, this king Jesus. Um, I went through that kind of fast. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I hope that you see um, this ongoing theme uh, that Christ is greater than the greatest king. He's only one worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one who's worthy to meld the roles of king and priest, and he's the only one who has authority over all of the nations. Um, I'm gonna let you guys go early tonight on purpose, on purpose. You all heard it. Um, I want to enter into a time of guided prayer where I'm gonna give you a couple of prompts, some things to think about and pray over, um, and then we'll be dismissed tonight. So if you'll bow your heads with me, uh, I want you guys to uh, pray over a couple of specific things. The first thing I want you to pray for uh, is a prayer of thanks. Uh, we are praying thanks specifically that Christ is our great high priest. Uh, thanks that as our great high priest, he is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf. The second thing I would like you to pray for is a renewed understanding of God's faithfulness. Um, keeping in mind that God spanned from Genesis to Psalms to Hebrews and keeping his promises.
Next, I would encourage you all to pray for Christ to be more glorified in our lives, uh, since he is the only one worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then lastly, I ask that you would pray that we as his church would offer ourselves freely in holy garments. Lord, our Father and our God, we just uh, pray that you would continue to bless us, continue to be with us as we seek you. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that it is only when we are clothed in your Son that we are able to even approach the throne. We thank you that in your wisdom, you provided for us a great high priest uh, who was not unfamiliar with our struggles, but in every way that we failed, he succeeded. We thank you that his faithfulness uh, is attributed to us. We thank you that he calls us uh, to himself. We pray that you would just be with us, um, help us to strive to serve you more and to make you better known. And in Christ's name we pray.